Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of conversations with spiritually awakening people and uh, about spiritually related topics. We've been doing this for 12, 13 years, have about 650 something of them, 650, 60 something of them now. So if this is new to you and you'd like to check out previous ones, just go to batgap.com and look under the past interviews menu where you'll see them organized in various ways. Or you could just explore the YouTube channel, although the website's actually better organized. We have everything more categorized. Subscribe to the YouTube channel if you like. I think we're going to hit 100,000 subscribers this year, which will be nice. And uh, if you'd like to discuss this interview, we don't have the discussion on YouTube because it was not a very good interface, actually, and, and a little hard to moderate. So for each interview, there's a link in the description to a specific section on the BatGap Facebook group where we have about 16,000 members and people can discuss the interviews there or anything else they want to discuss. It's a great honor to have Jeffrey Mishlove as my guest today. Probably most of you have heard of Jeffrey. He's been doing something similar to what I've been doing, but since 1986, which is fantastic. Between 86 and 2002, he hosted and co-produced the original Thinking Aloud public television series. And now he hosts the new Thinking Aloud series on YouTube. Recently, an organization called the Bigelow Institute sponsored an essay competition regarding the best evidence for survival of human consciousness after permanent bodily death. Jeffrey's essay won the half-million-dollar first prize. We're going to talk a lot about that today. He is the author of several books, including The Roots of Consciousness, The PK Man, and Psi Development Systems. And he is the recipient of the only doctoral diploma in parapsychology ever awarded by an accredited university, which was the University of California at Berkeley in 1980. So, welcome, Jeffrey. Thank you, Rick. It's a pleasure to be with you. Really good to have you here. We're going to probably talk for a couple of hours today, and we'll cover all kinds of topics, I'm sure, as you have been doing on your show over the years. You've interviewed some remarkable people, Houston Smith and Gene Houston, Ram Dass, all kinds of people. It's very impressive. I'll be linking to the website for both the New Thinking Aloud and the Thinking Aloud programs from your page on BatGap so people can go there and check them all out. Having listened to quite a few interviews of you, also by you over the years, but of you in the last week, I thought we might want to start with Uncle Harry's story. It's a great story in the sense that if you had to ask yourself, what was the single most powerful dream you've ever had in your life? In my case, that was a dream that occurred to me in March of 1972. That would be nearly 50 and a half years ago. And I remember it vividly, and it literally changed my life at the time. If you had known me, you would have seen a graduate student in criminology doing field work at San Quentin Prison in the psychiatric unit working with murderers and rapists in group therapy. So it was at that time that my great uncle Harry died. And on the day that he died, he was in Wisconsin. I'm still asleep in the early morning in California. And he appeared to me in a dream 
that was so powerful. It was like a merging of our souls. There, there was content associated with it, but the content was really trivial compared to the state of consciousness that the dream embodied. And when I woke up, I was crying, sobbing, tears of joy, and singing at the same time a, a sacred song from the Jewish religious tradition. So I wrote home and said, I had a dream. How's Uncle Harry? And immediately my mother called me up and he said, he just died. Apparently, at the very moment I was having that dream about him, that really stimulated me to reconsider what I was doing with my life. I knew that I was very interested in human deviance, the outer reaches of human behavior. But frankly, at any university, you could study crime. You can study psychopathology. It's much harder to study mysticism, parapsychology, psychic functioning, life after death, intuition, creativity, which are the topics that really interested me. And I agonized over that for many months, but eventually I was guided by even more dreams to pursue a career in the media. And that led me to have the confidence because I was then, even back in 1972, I started doing interviews and was in touch with the leading thought leaders in the fields that interested me the most who were passing through the San Francisco Bay Area where I lived. And so I had the confidence to set up this unique doctoral degree at the University of California. Why do you think it is that our society but back then and even now is much more knowledgeable about and interested in deviant behavior than mystical and spiritual experiences. And when I say our society, obviously our, our society is a spectrum and there's people on the spectrum who are more interested in the spiritual stuff, but at least the mainstream, more predominant segment of the spectrum seems to be more fascinated with the darker stuff. Certainly in the universities, the guardians of reality, so to speak, the universities, the scientific establishments are very materialistic in their orientation. In fact, if you take a viewpoint uh, that challenges their basic understanding of the material world as being fundamental, they can get very hostile. Yeah, I remember hearing you say that you were invited to speak at that consciousness conference in Tucson. And when they found out what you were going to speak about, which was consciousness surviving physical death or some such thing, they retracted the invitation or some sponsor of the conference said, if he's going to do that, I'm not sponsoring it, right? Yeah, it was about a big money donator who felt that very sympathetic to consciousness research, as am I, but his attitude was that anything having to do with survival of consciousness after death is purely anecdotal and therefore doesn't belong at a scientific conference. Well, he's wrong on both counts. There is actual experimental evidence relating to human postmortem survival. Of course, from my point of view, the researchers into consciousness sometimes say, how can we explain paranormal consciousness when we can't even explain normal 
consciousness. So let's work on that first. Uh, <laughs> my philosophy is it's just the opposite. You won't explain normal consciousness if you don't understand the paranormal capabilities of the human mind. True, because if they think that normal consciousness is actually somehow manufactured by the brain, the whole thing is upside down to begin with. So they're not going to understand that. It's like looking at a radio and saying, how does all this beautiful music come out of it? How do these circuits create Beethoven and stuff? Which, of course, they're never going to figure out because it doesn't. That's a very good analogy. I was going to go to that Tucson conference when COVID hit and I had to cancel. In fact, the conference was canceled. Later on, my, our mutual friend Jeffrey Martin said that he'd been to it for 10 years or something. And he said he's getting a little tired of it because they're still trying to, the whole discussion is about how does the brain create consciousness rather than how does consciousness create the brain and everything else? Well, I did participate as part of a panel on uh, exactly this non-local consciousness. So I and four other parapsychologists had a panel on the opening night of the conference, and it was very well attended. So Good. I do see movement. I think that slowly, very slowly, the whole culture is shifting. Yeah, through one funeral at a time, as Max Planck put it, <laughs> as the uh, people clinging to the old paradigm die off. Speaking of paradigms, Maybe uh, Thomas Kuhn was before your time. Did you interview him by any chance? I never knew him, but I certainly you know, was exposed to his work. For the listeners, he wrote a book called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, which is really essential reading, I think. It, it explains the whole process through which paradigms or structures of knowledge get established and are eventually toppled when enough new evidence um, shakes them hard enough. <laughs> so you just quickly brushed over how you at a very young age, started interviewing people. And there's a whole nice story behind that, which we don't have to go into, but it was synchronistic in a way where you ended up at this, what was it, a radio station or public access TV? Tell it in brief. Sure. After my Uncle Harry dream, I began agonizing about how am I going to make this switch out of criminology to, to study the mystical life. And I wasn't getting anywhere for months which I think is important if you're willing to really focus on something for months until you can find a solution. You know, your whole soul gets tightened up, tightened up, tightened up, and then finally there's a release. And the release came to me several months later in which one day I knew without a doubt I was going to have a dream that night and I would find an answer in the dream. And I did. I dreamt I was visiting friends in Berkeley across town. I knocked on the door of their apartment. No answer. So in the dream, I found a key, let myself in, walked into the middle of their living room. And there in the middle of the living room floor was a magazine. I picked it up. In the dream, it was named I, E-Y-E. As I was paging through the magazine, I woke up with this feeling like I knew I had the answer. I knew the answer was in the magazine, but I had no clue as to what the answer was. So I did something very unusual, but it's a dream interpretation technique I recommend whenever it's possible. I literally acted out the dream. I woke up at seven in the morning, put on my tennis shoes, ran all the way across town five miles, came to this apartment, knocked on the door, 
as I had dreamt, there was no answer. I happened to know where they kept the key, right under the floor mat, and found it, let myself in, walked into the living room, and there, exactly as I had dreamt, was a magazine sitting on the floor, spread open. And I picked it up and noticed the name was Focus. And it literally brought focus to my life. And for San Francisco viewers and listeners of your program, they'll recognize that as the magazine of public radio and television in the San Francisco area. And as I was paging through it, it dawned on me for the first time in my life that I could pursue my interests by getting involved in the non-commercial sector of the media. So that's when I went over to KPFA, Pacifica Radio, which is another nonprofit radio network in Berkeley, and volunteered. And even though I had my master's degree at the time, they said, sure, sit at this desk. And when you hear the doorbell ring, press this button and let people in the front door. That's, <laughs> that's how I got started. And I did it gladly. And within two weeks, I had produced a radio program. I learned how to do it and produced a, a little program about how you don't have to be from out of town to be psychic. I just began interviewing a lot of my friends in Berkeley. And the program director liked it so much that he said, we have a regular spot for you every Tuesday and Thursday at noon. Would you please host this program called The Mind's Ear? So within three weeks of my dream, I'm sitting across the table, just as you've been doing for years now, with world-class leaders in the fields that interested me the most. And that was a life changer. So I've literally been doing interviews since I think it would be November 1972. Wow. That's a great story. Yeah, I had a kind of a similar thing in terms of this desire that wouldn't let me alone of I should do an interview show. I should do an interview. And I was trying to get the local radio station here to let me do it there. And for some reason, they didn't want to. It's just a little thing with a 10-mile radius, you know. And finally, friend said, you're thinking too small. Go over to the public access TV station. Start recording them. And so I did that and did a bunch of them. And then, and then I just kind of like one thing led to the next. You know, had to learn a lot along the way. Set up a YouTube channel, create a website. Your dream actually is a good illustration of a couple of things. One is you seem to get a lot of guidance from dreams, which is cool. And another thing is who's guiding us in these circumstances? Was it really Uncle Harry? Was it some other kind of intelligence representing itself as Uncle Harry? And then what sort of intelligence or omniscience would it take to give you a dream that would show you that you had to go to this apartment five miles away and find a magazine on the floor. And that how did that intelligence know that what you needed to find in order to embark on the path you've taken was somewhere in that magazine? That kind of stuff really fascinates me, as I'm sure it does yeah. you. Well, I have a way of thinking about it and explaining it to people, which is, first of all, I would say the whole universe is conscious. Yep. And, and, and we partake of that consciousness. But at the time, I was desperately trying to do something more positive with my life. And my sense is that 
when you try to become the best version of yourself, the universe wants to help you and, and the universe will create synchronicities in order to help you along on that path. Yeah, which implies that consciousness is not only awareness, but it's intelligence. Sometimes people speak of consciousness and it has this plain vanilla connotation, but it's really an omnipresent field of intelligence, which is orchestrating the whole universe from the quarks to the galaxies so beautifully and us in between. I have to think we never talked about this, Rick, but since I know now you're in Fairfield, it sounds like you have been through the science of creative intelligence. I have a master's degree in it, and (laughs) I was a TM teacher for many years. I'm I'm not in the TM movement anymore, although I have no gripe with it, but I've branched out. But what you're saying, the science of creative intelligence, as the Maharishi developed it, is basically the uh, philosophy of Vedanta. It's a very ancient philosophy. As far as I'm concerned, it's part of uh, what Aldous Huxley called the perennial philosophy. You can find it in every culture, in every mystical tradition. And I think it's the ground of uh, thinking for understanding paranormal events. Yeah. And he felt that this is a scientific age and we need to speak in the language of the age and that you know, the ancient seers actually took a very scientific approach because they weren't content with believing things. They wanted to experience them. And the beliefs, if if we can call them that, were only hypotheses that needed to be tested. And so he felt, well, we can apply the scientific method as it has been developed in modern times to consciousness and empirically investigate everything there is to, to know about consciousness. When I created my doctoral program in parapsychology at Berkeley. I defined parapsychology in a way very different than other people use the term because I felt we needed to include the ancient thinking of uh, the rishis of India and, and the shamans of Siberia and the mystical teachings of every culture. In a way, these people were the early parapsychologists. Yeah. One thing I hope we can get into is how objective and repeatable and reliable can the subjective investigation be as compared with objective methods? Because subjectivity by definition is considered woo-woo or, you know, unreliable or just a fabrication of the individual's nervous system or mind, as opposed to the things we can really nail down if we use mass spectrometers and other kinds of physical instruments. Well, you're absolutely right. We live in a materialistic age that values sensory experience and and physicality, the things of the external world, much more. But from a scientific point of view, Parapsychology can be viewed like any other behavioral science. Uh, You have to look at the statistics. And I'll give you one example. Most people are familiar with the uh, research that says that if you take a little baby aspirin every day, you can reduce your odds of having a heart attack or a stroke which is true. I take a baby aspirin every single day because my doctor has prescribed it for me. However, the research in extrasensory perception from a statistical perspective is stronger than that. 
The findings of parapsychology are stronger than the findings that aspirin helps prevent heart disease. Yeah. And the findings of a lot of things of this nature. For instance, when we had all those things in the TM movement where we went to troubled areas and had large groups meditating and the sociologists measured all the social statistics, you know, like crime rate and economic indicators and all that, they got very high statistical significance in terms of the correlation of numbers of people meditating in an area and the impact it had on society. And actually some very credible journals were more or less forced to publish this stuff because they couldn't find any way to shoot holes in it, but it was, they did so quite reluctantly. (laughs) Well, I'm very interested in that research on the Maharishi effect. It seems to me it's very significant. Yeah, I participated in a bunch of those things. I spent three months in Iran and all kinds of interesting adventures. But anyway, the principle behind that was just that consciousness is a field. And if you enliven the field, it influences everybody in the vicinity. Well, I think that's probably why you do these uh, video broadcasts. And and it's why I do them, too. And there's a deeper reason where I think we might, well, a related reason why I think we might both do them. And that is that I think both of us, since we were quite young, had a feeling that the more fundamental level on which we could work, the more impact we might have, the more leverage we might have in terms of making a positive contribution to the world. For you, it seems to have mainly been in terms of parapsychology, but I think that includes what I was also interested in, which is consciousness and developing that in my own experience and understanding as fully as possible and sharing it with others as much as possible. Yeah, it's hard to be in the field of parapsychology without studying consciousness because in in effect, parapsychology is looking at the direct effects of consciousness acting outside of the instrumentation of the human body. So it's like receiving information from a distance in space or time outside the range of the senses and also influencing events well beyond the range of, of the body itself and the muscles. Why do you think it's important that people understand that? Why do you think it's important they understand that consciousness gives rise to matter and not the other way around? What do you think society would be like if the understanding that consciousness is fundamental were the norm as opposed to being a a little sort of niche thing over off to one side? It's about, for me, self-awareness. You know, Socrates is the one, I think, who said, know thyself. That's the main dictum of philosophy, and yet we live in a culture in which people studiously are encouraged not to understand the power of their own minds. And as a result, we have enormous problems in society. Social alienation is higher now uh, than it's been for quite a while, and it's always been relatively high in my lifetime. And the problems of social alienation include pollution and violence and all sorts of things that occur largely, I think, because people are ignorant of their own true nature. Yeah, I mean, you know, Jesus said as they were nailing him to the cross, um, forgive them, Father, they know not what they do. If Vladimir Putin really knew the self, himself, you know, I say the self because it's not his personally, we all share it. But if all the people who are building nuclear bombs or trashing the oceans or attacking other countries or 
doing all the horrible things that people do, really had that level of self-realization that we're, we're talking about here, I don't think they'd be doing those things. We'd really have a different kind of world. Yeah, I would agree with you completely. On a similar note, very related, similar question, regarding the theme of your essay, why do you think it's important that people understand that consciousness survives physical death? What kind of impact is that going to have on their lives? Well, the way I view it, Rick, is that even here in the body, we partake of the same consciousness that people who have left their body partake of. So that we're one with those people. If we understood the depth of our own consciousness, we would realize that we're already interfacing with what the Tibetans call the bardo planes. It's not something that you have to wait until you die before you can experience it. It's, you know, the common dictum is, well, nobody has come back from the dead to talk about it. It's simply not true. I mean, it's true, both in terms of NDEs, near-death experiences, and in terms of people who have actually died and then communicated through people, which we can get into in, in, your, in our conversation. Yeah. People have come back both ways. Yeah. In fact, extensively, extensively. Yeah. I printed out the whole table of contents for your essay because it provides us a nice structure of points to go through. So I'll kind of use it, but we can deviate from that any way you want as we go along. One thing that I was impressed by when I heard you describe your process of writing this essay, which incidentally I will link to on your BatGet page and I highly encourage people to read, is the one-pointedness with which you worked on it. I mean, you stopped doing your interviews, you just cut out all distractions, and you sometimes work 12-hour days focused on this thing. And another thing which you've actually alluded to earlier is that you just had a certainty that you were going to win it. I was reminded of this earlier when you spoke about, you know, starting your interview show. And that is that, what is it? Another thing Christ said, something like, if you want something, just believe you already have it or something and and you'll get it. <laughs> I'm, I'm yeah. paraphrasing very roughly, but right. I'm glad I didn't try to write an essay for this thing because you would have beat me by a mile. <laughs> I would have spent a lot of time for, for nothing. I certainly did have that one-pointed consciousness. And I did have a sense of knowing that I was going to win as if I was seeing the future, as if it had already happened. That's all true. And I can't say that I forced it or that I made it happen in, in any way. The competition was really very intense and you know, I think it was uh, in some ways just something synchronistic, really, the, the, the way it worked out. I, I have to say this, there were over 200 essays that were submitted in this competition. There were over 1,200 people who applied to submit an essay. There are essays that were submitted that never received even honorable mention. A total of 29 essays actually won financial awards in this competition. But I know people who have written essays that didn't win any awards. And when I have looked at them, they're masterful. Hmm. They're brilliant essays. So I'm inclined to think that the Bigelow competition has been a big boost for the whole field in in many, many ways uh, some of which we probably won't learn about for years. Yeah, and what people will see if they start reading your essay is that it's organized in a very clear way. 
And it's footnoted. You have well over 200 footnotes referencing things that one could read. It has well over 100 embedded videos in it that are excerpts from your interviews with various people. So it's really easy to read. And I learned all kinds of things that I hadn't known. I just finished it this morning. I kind of timed it so I would finish it before the interview. It's an impressive work. I heard you say in one interview that you were planning to use some of the prize money to further develop your new thinking aloud channel. What ideas do you have for doing that? Well, for one thing, I think I'm slowly beginning to move on to other projects. I've been doing the New Thinking Aloud channel very intensively for seven years. And, you know, a 12-hour day is normal for me. But now I'm looking at doing some documentaries. I'm looking at doing some research, possibly. I'm also on the board now at the Bigelow Institute. So one of the things that we're doing with the New Thinking Aloud channel is starting to bring in other interviewers. I have one interviewer, Emmy Vadness, who's an occupational therapist and a healer, herself and uh, we're getting wonderful feedback from our viewers about her interviews so that would be an example of uh, how we're expanding the channel yeah you've been putting up like i've heard you say often four interviews a week on new thinking aloud which, sometimes five wow and you just mentioned 12 hour days so i imagine you actually put in some preparation time for these four or five interviews I do, indeed. I try to read all the books of the people that I interview, which I know is relatively rare. Many interviews never even open the books. But, no, I do uh, it too, but it takes me a whole week to do one, and you're doing like yeah. five times as much. That's amazing. I yeah. learned how to skim through the books. Yeah. I usually do most of my book reading while walking in the woods, listening to the books, and get my exercise in that way. Good way to do it. One thing I was thinking take it or leave it, that you might do with the new Thinking Aloud channel is take all the Thinking Aloud interviews and put them up on the new channel. Because right now it's you have to order DVDs, which is so 1990s. You could get them up on the, on the internet and it would be a tremendous legacy. Lots more people. The, yeah, the, the original Thinking Aloud channel is actually owned by a separate company, my former business partner, Arthur Block, is now the owner of that company. But we do. We put up one video from the original Thinking Aloud series every week, and we keep it up for just a week at a time. Uh, so they, they are up. Uh, Arthur Block has actually set up a, a subscription-based Vimeo channel where the uh, other Thinking Aloud videos can be found. I see. Okay, so proceeding along here, just to get us back on track, let's throw in a Max Planck quote that I've heard before, but I saw it in your essay. I regard matter as derivative from consciousness. We cannot get behind consciousness. Everything we talk about, everything that we regard as existing, postulates consciousness. And of course, Max Planck and some of his buddies actually studied Vedic literature and all I have a good friend named Phil Goldberg who wrote a book called American Veda. You should interview Phil. It was all about how Eastern thought, particularly Vedic thought, has influenced the West over really quite early, way back in the 1800s. You use the word uh, white crows. What do you mean by white crows? 
It's a term that was first used by one of my intellectual heroes, William James, a great psychical research. And psychical research, of course, was the discipline that sort of preceded what we call parapsychology today. He was also regarded as the founder of uh, psychology itself in the United States, as well as the founder of religious studies and one of America's foremost philosophers. And uh, he said, if you want to disprove the hypothesis that all crows are black, you only need to find one white crow. And what he meant by that is, if you want to disprove the hypothesis that we don't survive death, that consciousness dies with the death of the body, you just need one good contrary example. And he was studying a medium who lived in Boston near him where he lived named Leonora Piper. And he added, Mrs. Piper is my white crow. (laughs) She's one of the most extensively studied mediums in the history of psychical research, consistently regarded as an authentic person who never hint of any kind of cheating going on. William James was a champion at that time of research with mediums. And as a result, in spite of his enormous stature in the academic community, he was laughed at and treated very rudely because of his interest in Mrs. Piper. And he even published an article I cite from Science. He had a debate with his opponents in the pages of Science Magazine. I believe it was in about 1903, and he's defending Mrs. Piper, and and he's complaining about the poor quality of the criticisms of the research with Mrs. Piper. And he's saying, well, mediums are scientific outlaws, and any of their defenders are quasi-insane. And he goes on to say, any stick is good enough to beat a dog of that stripe with meaning his critics didn't even care that they had weak arguments and didn't even realize. Yeah, modern-day critics of the same ilk. For instance, Dean Radin has had people say to him things like, well, I don't need to look at your research because it couldn't be possibly be true, so I'm not going to bother. Explain the word scientism. That will lead into that question I was sure. going to ask. I refer to our present era as the dark age of scientism. I think in some of the Vedic traditions, they think of it as a Kali Yuga. But in any case, scientism is the belief that the materialistic worldview that works so well in science and in technology generally is the explanation that will account for everything in the universe. You never have to look beyond the materialistic, mechanistic way of thinking. That's all you will ever need. And anything that doesn't fit the materialistic, mechanistic worldview simply doesn't exist. It can be regarded without any further ado as fantasy. So they're about 120 years behind the cutting edge of science because Einstein and and the, the quantum physicists blew that out of the water the turn of the 20th century. Yeah, long ago. It gets even deeper when you go into things like the the Gödel's incompleteness theorem, in in which he points out, in effect, that there's no explanation that will ever be complete in a pure scientific mathematical sense. Mathematics can't even justify itself, for example. 
So in the case of your argument in this essay, there's a whole flock of white crows, lots of them crowing around. You can't even find any black crows. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think I've come up with a good 26 examples of undeniable evidence that pretty much disproves the viewpoint that uh, consciousness dies with the death of the body. And again, it seems like the main reason this hasn't convinced more people is that the influential people have refused to take it seriously. They keep brushing it off. And I imagine that what will happen is what Thomas Kuhn predicted, which is that the anomalies will just become overwhelming enough that they won't be able to. I'm pretty sure that will be the case. But even now, uh, for the last 75 years, ever since they've been making sociological measurements in the United States, 70% or more of the public believes in an afterlife. And that's even while religious participation is declining. So you can't say, oh, well, they accept whatever their church tells them. That's not it. It's because, if if you want my opinion, it's because we have evidence and we've always had evidence from near-death experiences, people coming back and saying what it was like once people have had a near-death experience, they almost universally know beyond any doubt that uh, we survived death. And that gets spread around the culture. And even in academia, People are afraid to talk about it. But if you ask them privately, you'll find that it's the same, that 75% or so, except uh, the paranormal phenomena. Yeah. And some of the people who've had these near-death experiences are people like Eben Alexander, who himself was an atheist and materialist and then had this incredible near-death experiences. We've both interviewed him and completely flipped his worldview. You know, this thing about religions declining... uh, Of course, you've heard the term spiritual but not religious. A lot of people are beginning to define themselves that way. And I saw an article the other day about how a lot of people are leaving the Mormon church, and quite a large group of them have formed this group of some, I forget what it's called, where they're all taking psilocybin and having these mystical experiences. Kind of amusing in a way. That category of spiritual but not religious is one of the fastest growing demographic categories in the Western world, actually. It's really a a significant portion of the population. I'm going to guess close to 30%. Yeah. If we just flesh that out a little bit, what does that really mean? To me, it means people who want to have direct experience and not just rely on believing stuff. That's spiritual, but not religious. I think that's true. And I also think that we live in an era where we are the inheritors of global culture. Now, I know there's a downside to that, but what it means is is that we have the ability to acquire knowledge about Buddhism and Vedanta and shamanism and Zoroastrian traditions and Kabbalah. And people... In fact, what they do, good or bad, is they often pick and choose the best aspects of a variety of traditions and integrate that into their personal lifestyle. 
I've interviewed one fellow, a so-called religious traditionalist, who thinks that this is a terrible idea. You know, they don't like it. They can't stomach the idea. But as far as I'm concerned, it can be very healthy if it's done judiciously and with some kind of personal integrity. Yeah, that's a good point. I'm going to skip towards the end of my notes here where you said... Most of the people you have known who have psychic abilities tend not to be the most moral people. They use them for good or bad or whatever. They're just, they just behave like ordinary human beings with psychic abilities, kind of like if Superman didn't really have a strong moral code. Whereas the most moral people you know wouldn't consider using psychic abilities or flaunting them or displaying them in any way. And that kind of jibes with a lot of the traditional teachers and, you know, Patanjali and the Yoga Sutras, you know, outlines all these abilities and then says, but, you know, you can get sidetracked if you indulge in them or you certainly wouldn't want to make a show of them or try to earn a living doing them on street corners or something. Some people are called to it. People who are professional mediums uh, often have a calling. I, many people I, I've interviewed who, who never thought of themselves this way, didn't want to be a medium, but something pushed them the way you and I got pushed to follow our own unique paths. Yeah. So I think that's perfectly valid. I don't object if people charge money for it as well, if it's coming from their own core. If it's part of their, you know, personal destiny, part of what it means for them to be the best version of themselves, it can be a beautiful thing. And I think it would be good. I mean, it's good in life in general, whatever whatever you do in life, if there were some ethical or moral development accompanying the development of these abilities. Because otherwise, if there isn't, inevitably people are going to use them for perhaps nefarious purposes. Well, there's a whole tradition of black magic and yeah. sorcery and the misuse of these abilities has always been part of human culture. It's something that shamans have always understood, for example. It's like any other ability, mathematical ability or athletic ability. You can have it without being a highly moral person. And in this case, you're playing with powerful stuff and you could end up not only harming others, but really... Um harming yourself quite even, even worse. Um, a couple of questions came in. Here's one from Wesley in Oregon. What does Jeffrey think about the potential capabilities of humans? As we progress spiritually as individuals and collectively, what kind of capabilities might open up and become more common, like psychic, or telekinesis, traversing dimensions, which reminds me of a Stephen Wright joke. He said, if, if you believe in telekinesis, raise my hand. <laughs> But anyway, that was that was yeah. Wesley's question. Then. Yeah, that's a good question. And in answer, I would say you can go to the Yoga Sutras, for example, where they list all the cities. I think that those powers of the mind, and I don't think the Yoga Sutras is a complete list, but it is a large list, are going to become more and more prominent. And the way I think about it is based on the dictum by John Lilly, the great medical doctor and researcher. I had the pleasure of interviewing him. He, he died many years ago. And he wrote in a book, Programming and Metaprogramming of the Human Biocomputer. And his dictum is this. He says, in the province of the mind, what you believe to be true is true or becomes true. 
within certain limits to be defined by experience and experiment. And those limits are further belief systems to be transcended. So I ultimately don't think there's any limit at all. Ultimately, the goal is cosmic consciousness. The goal is perfect enlightenment. It may take us a very long time to get there, but the only obstacles towards us being there are our own beliefs. St. Teresa of Avila said, it appears that the Lord himself is on the journey. (laughs) So (laughs) we're all moving along. We've already covered this point, but I just want to read it out because this person is from Ukraine and uh, we all feel so much compassion for what's happening there. Maxim Krutas asks, greetings from Ukraine. Thanks for the truth told. Would Putin do what he does if he knew his true nature? Well, I'd like to say no. It would be very comforting to say no. But I suppose at the end of the day, I don't know. And I am reminded of a wonderful book by Stanislas Grof called The Cosmic Game, in which he points out that, you know, we're looking at this from our human perspective. But from another perspective, for example, once we all die and we're all in the afterlife, you're going to be there probably with Putin. And there is a sense in which you and me and Putin are all the same person. We're all versions of each other. And we're acting out a kind of cosmic game. And from our human perspective, it seems like uh, what Putin is doing involves terrible, terrible suffering. But think of it from this end. If you look at the research on near-death experience. There's a phenomenon there known as the life review that many near-death experiencers report in which they relive every moment of their lives second by second, but not only from their own perspective, but they relive from the perspective of every other person they have ever influenced, positive or negative. So I have to assume that Uh, If this principle holds that Putin himself at some point is going to experience all the pain from every individual person as a result of his actions and all the good things that he may have done. And so we all will do that. But ultimately, it seems living in this physical environment that we live in, there needs to be a balance between positive and negative that creates the dramatic tension within which spiritual growth on the physical plane becomes possible. And for that to occur, there needs to be Putins in the world. Yeah, it might sound harsh, but I agree with you. Some sages have said that the angels in heaven don't evolve very much there because there's no contrast, there's no challenge. They don't even want to close their eyes and meditate because everything is so beautiful. It's just a time for reaping the rewards of a life well lived, perhaps, but it's not as evolutionary as it might be on earth. And so they end up wanting to come back and uh, live this more difficult life because of the evolutionary opportunities it affords. And, you know, many people suggest that before we're born into this physical plane, we have a conversation with our spiritual guides about what it is we intend to accomplish. I know Carolyn Meese talks about a contract. We make a contract. This is what we're going to do in this lifetime. So I have to assume that people, their souls, 
like Putin or said, would you like to be a world leader who ends up creating a war and causing enormous suffering? It means that you will have to experience all of that suffering yourself at some point, but it's part of the cosmic plan. Somebody needs to do it. Would you volunteer? (laughs) You may be right. There are stories like that in the Vedic literature. There's like some highly evolved soul is given the the choice. Would you like to live X number of lives as a really good guy or come back as this demon and you're going to end up battling Krishna? He's going to kill you and then you're going to get enlightened after one life. He said, "Okay, I'll do that. But I'm very sympathetic from a human point of view that Putin has done a horrible thing. Okay. Well, a lot of this is speculative, of course, because we're drawing upon what ancient traditions have said. And even they, did they know for sure? Or did they just cook up a whole mythology that kind of made sense? And you'd like to think that the great yogis and seers could actually cognize these different levels of creation that are closed off to most of us and that there's some authenticity or reliability to the way they've mapped it out. But again, it's one of those hypothetical things that we just need to investigate. Who knows? I'm very moved by one of the hymns in the Rig Veda about the creation of the universe. It's just beautiful description of how the universe was created because the one consciousness was very lonely and out of this loneliness it developed a certain heat and a, a certain hunger and out of the hunger came the multiplicity of experiences that are possible for us now in the physical world. And then the hymn ends by saying, who knows if this is really true? It says, maybe even even the highest God in the highest heaven doesn't know for sure. Yeah, I love that verse. It's great. A lot of uh, humility in whoever put that into the Vedas. A question came in. As long as we get it in here, you're going to have to explain what this means. Um, someone named Zach Chalfant is asking, what is Jeffrey's opinion on the macro-psychokinetic phenomenon reported by Sorat? Okay, I can explain that. I've done interviews on that. SORAT is a a group of people that were active in Missouri during the 1960s, maybe 1970s and 80s. I think there may be some splinter groups that are still active. It was originally established by a great American writer, Nyhart. I think it's John Nyhart, who was the author of Black Elk oh, yeah. Speaks. Very popular book. He was the poet laureate, I think, of this state of Missouri, if I recall correctly, or maybe it was Nebraska. But he was very interested in psychokinesis, and he set up these groups, and they were called SORAT for, I think it's the Society for the Study of Psychokinesis, something of that, or telekinesis, as they put it. And they held seances, and they had many, many powerful phenomena reported, like literally earthquake-like experiences where the houses they were in would begin shaking and many, many things like materializations would occur and people would go into trance and speak in tongues and on and on. And parapsychologists learned about this, especially because one of Nyhart's students, a man named John Richards, uh, continued the work after Nyhart died. And Richards himself was apparently a powerful medium. So 
several parapsychologists, William Cox in particular, wrote a book all about it. And what they reported was that these phenomena, uh, phenomena were authentic. William Cox set up what he called a mini lab, which was a, a scientific laboratory sealed in glass, so it couldn't be broken into. He put objects in the mini lab, and he'd have cameras focused on the mini lab. And what the cameras caught was, for example, there could be a pencil and paper inside the mini lab, and it seemed as if the spirits, I'm going to call them spirits, but we can't be sure, but what the video cameras captured was the pencil inside the mini lab writing messages all of, uh, by itself. And, and is that videotaped? Yeah, yeah. I have a videotaped copy of that. Many of the messages were sent to people. I interviewed a sociologist, James McLennan, who wrote a book about this, and he himself personally received, I think, dozens, maybe hundreds of letters that were ostensibly dictated by the spirits. Now, these phenomena are so strong and so bizarre that most people simply find them unbelievable. And that's true of all macro-psychokinetic phenomena, large-scale mind-over-matter phenomenon, whether it's caused by humans or whether it's caused by ostensible spiritual entities. Most people simply say, I, I can't go that far and believe in that. It's just a step too far because it's very rare. And it seems to violate, in a gross way, all of our understanding of how the physical universe works. But I can tell you from my own research, and I'm referring now to a book I wrote called The PK Man, a 10-year study I did of a man who exhibited macro-psychokinetic abilities, that uh, such phenomena are real. They do occur. And so while the researchers themselves have yet to accept the validity of the Surratt phenomenon for the very reason that it's just too mind-blowing, neither can they deny it. So my inclination is to say, accept it. I've seen too much of it myself to deny it any longer. Yeah. And I think what happens is most people ignore it because they hear a little bit about it and if they're in a position to actually research it, if they were in a position, they're probably going to say, well, to heck with that. I'm going to lose my salary if I go into that or I'll lose my chance at tenure or everybody will say I've gone crazy. So I don't want anything to do with it. I'm just going to focus on my area. I'll just pretend I didn't hear about that thing. <laughs> well, what a shame, because this is a power that's innate in most people. You know, when Uri Geller used to go around doing demonstrations back when I started on the radio, I got involved with Uri Geller in the 1970s and we'd bring him in to the studio and we would receive dozens and dozens of phone calls from listeners who said they're experiencing macro psychokinetic events, silverware bending spontaneously or watches that hadn't worked in years starting up automatically just because Uri Geller was on the radio. Yeah. There's a bunch of chapters in your essay and I was thinking of spending just mm -hmm. a few minutes on each one. But before I get into that, a question came in from my friend Landon Hall in New Hampshire. Landon is a BatGap volunteer. She helps to proofread the transcripts of the interviews. 
she's asking, you mentioned that human beings can work with the bardo states during their lives and not wait. Can you say more about that? Do you simply mean mediumistic communication with beings on the other side in the bardo or something more? And must you practice Tibetan Buddhism in order to work with the bardo states? What a great question. Uh, Thank you, Landon. And uh, also, I commend you for being a volunteer. I know that New Thinking Aloud depends on uh, our volunteers, and it's wonderful that you have them as well, Rick. What I think is that the Bardo Plains, in other words, the afterlife realms, and there are several of them, many of them, interface with our personal unconscious through dreams. For example, Uncle Harry came to me in a dream from the Bardo Plains. So there's a direct interface there. And you can go from your dreams into the Bardo Plains as well. Now, this was documented extensively by the great Swiss psychiatrist Carl Jung in his um, autobiography, Memories, Dreams, and Reflections, and also in his Red Book, which documents his own experiences with active imagination. That was the technique he used. So through meditation, through imagination, also experienced meditators. I've done several interviews with a researcher in England, a Scottish Buddhist meditator who has shown that advanced Buddhist meditators who are, they're not Tibetan Buddhists, but they practice, they have a particular practice where they can enter into the Bardo Plains in their meditation. Uh, So he tested them and he measured uh, them, their experiences using what's known as the uh, near-death experience scale. And uh, he found that their experiences were quite comparable to the experiences of people who have an actual near-death experience. So it was called meditation-induced near-death experience. Very, very similar. Another example would be work that Raymond Moody has done, and he calls it the shared death experience, where people who are sitting at the deathbed of a loved one, or maybe even distantly located at the moment of death, but emotionally connected to a loved one, actually experience their passage as as they die, how they move into the early stages of the afterlife. That's very common. We carry the afterlife with us all the time. Yeah, I interviewed a fellow named William Peters, who specializes in shared death experience, wrote a book about it and everything. You know, William? Yeah. Yeah, I've interviewed him as well. I'm sure there's a lot of overlap amongst the people we interviewed. There is, which is not to say that people couldn't watch my interview with Gene Houston and your interview with Gene Houston and and they'd hear the same thing, you know, because I think we each tease different ideas out of people and different points come up. I just want to say to Landon that if you're practicing some form of deep meditation, you traverse all sorts of subtle levels of the mind, of creation, of the bardos, or whatever, as you dive deep in in meditation. And you you get more and more familiar with these deeper levels, and you incorporate them into your ordinary awareness eventually. Sometimes it can actually be perceptual, where you're normally perceiving stuff that is outside the realm of human perception. And other times you may not perceive it so much as just benefit from it, because 
you're so intimately connected with these deeper impulses of intelligence that they guide your life much more smoothly and readily. Also, mystical experiences, which are widely reported in an enormous variety of circumstances. You can get hit on the head with a rock and have a mystical experience on occasion. It seemed to be almost identical to the near-death experience. And you don't have to almost die to have them. Nor do you have to get hit with a rock. There are much safer ways of having these experiences. Before we get back to your outline, another question. I just want to pop this in here and make sure we get to it. This is from a fellow named Jez Fletcher, who happens to be working on a yacht in the Mediterranean. Having read all the published Bigelow essays, he was surprised that none mentioned the recent declassification of unidentified aerial phenomenon. They may not directly relate to the question of survival of human consciousness, but they do at least punch a hole in the materialistic, Earth-centric paradigm. What are your thoughts on that? Well, the government revelations, I don't think, go quite that far. What they're suggesting is that the Navy has tracked aerial phenomena that seem to defy our technology. They can move faster, they can change directions faster than anything built by any human commercial enterprise or government. And they also seem to have a certain intelligence. And even, I would say, they demonstrate a kind of telepathy because they are known, in effect, to read the minds of the Navy pilots. For example, in one instance, Navy pilots out on training missions had a rendezvous point they were going to meet at. And this unidentified uh, object, they were observing it in one location, and it just instantly zipped away, disappeared, and appeared right at that point where all the aircraft were supposed to meet each other, suggesting somehow it had obtained that knowledge. So, yeah, that part of it might suggest that it, it defies our Western understanding of consciousness. But many people in the UFO community still imagine that these phenomena will ultimately be explained along materialistic principles, that they are vehicles that came across interstellar distances from advanced civilizations. And once we're advanced enough, we'll be able to do it too, using the same materialistic science that we now use. I'm inclined to think that there's a large overlap between UFO phenomena and the afterlife. Uh, It goes back to the 19th century in which, in addition to deceased individuals appearing in spiritualistic seances, extraterrestrials would appear. And that's true right up until the present day. There's an enormous overlap. Whitley Strieber, for example, reported that in in his encounter in which he had sex with an extraterrestrial, there was a deceased individual sitting in the room watching the whole thing. (laughs) The way I put it, as a matter of fact, in My acceptance speech at the Bigelow Institute Award Ceremony, I urged the billionaires out there who are interested in space exploration to put some of their money into the far reaches of human consciousness, because as far as I can tell, we're never going to be able to travel interstellar distances until we master hyperspace. 
The mastery of hyperspace is necessary if you want to travel more than one light year, I would say. And as soon as you begin to understand hyperspace, you've got to pay attention to the relationships between hyperspace and consciousness. When I think of the Bardo planes, I think of it in terms of hyperspace. I think the Bardo planes are a real place. And uh, the way to explain real places that we can't touch in our three-dimensional world most of the time, although occasionally there seem to be overlaps, is to think of it in terms of higher dimensions of space itself. I forget who it was, but I heard somebody say recently, I've heard the idea before, that extraterrestrial civilizations, if they're capable of visiting us, would have to have attained higher states of consciousness, because if they hadn't, then they would reach a certain technological threshold in which they would blow themselves up before they gain the technologies to travel light years. So there must be some kind of filtering process. That's related to what is known as the Fermi paradox, which is considering there are so many billions of stars in just in our galaxy that seem to have the capability of uh, supporting life, the planets we've found hundreds and hundreds of kids. You can even see them now through our advanced telescopes on other stars. Why haven't we been able to pick up more radio, in fact, any radio or uh, television signals from these civilizations that must be out there? And uh, the theorists say, well, it's because as soon as a civilization attains that kind of capability, they're likely to destroy themselves. Yeah which in a way might be a safety factor, because if someone attained the ability to travel throughout the galaxy and develop commensurate destructive capabilities, they would be a real menace, you know, like Darth Vader. So who knows? I mean, we're speculating again here. Sure. Let's get into this outline and, um, you know, just spend a few minutes on each one just to give people an overview. So you broke your, your essay down into... And you call this the spectrum of arrows, because each one of these is an arrow which provides evidence for the survival of consciousness after physical death. Yeah, so near-death experience. There are over a million people who have had near-death experiences. People say that, well, it doesn't really count as evidence for the afterlife because they didn't die, which, of course, they didn't die. That's how come they're telling us about their experiences. But I do think it's fair to say that the experiences that they have are indicative of the early stages of the afterlife. They get into the early stages and then they come back. So uh, that's my summary. Yeah. Also, the most interesting ones are ones where they're not only having a near-death experience, but they're having an out-of-body experience. They're probably under anesthesia, they're unconscious, but they experience stuff in the hospital or somewhere, which later turns out they can talk about it. And sure enough, it's true. There's a red sneaker on the ceiling or, you know, my cousin got a Snickers bar from the vending machine in the lobby and he doesn't eat candy and, you know, things like that. Those experiences are indicative of what we call living agent psi, or psychic functioning amongst the living. At least that's how some parapsychologists would rather explain them. They think that talking about the afterlife is a step too far. But from my perspective, if you've got living agent psi, you're already showing that the human mind can operate outside of the body. 
Yeah, I always say that too. You know, how could you have a problem with life after death if you're able to accept psi phenomenon, which clearly show that you know, we're not limited to our bodies? It's not a big leap. That's true. But within the parapsychology community, it's one of those esoteric arguments that goes on. Here's the next major category, after-death communications. Well, that's probably the biggest single category because most people, when a loved one dies or even a close friend, they often experience some form of after-death communication. It could be in a dream, like my dream of Uncle Harry. It could be through synchronicities that occur. One person has written a book about how because of a communication before death, they began experiencing these little cat's eye marbles everywhere. And it seemed to them that this was a communication from the other side. A great example is in a brand new book written by the congressman, Jeremy Raskin. It's called Unbelievable, I think was the title. Jamie Raskin. Jamie Raskin. He's on the January 6th committee. His son committed suicide or something, didn't he? That's right. And he wrote about that, uh, both of these, the January 6th. Well, he was part of the impeachment hearing. He led the impeachment hearings right after the January 6th event. And his son, on December 31st, had committed suicide. So he talks about... Before his son died, he lost a pair of glasses, and his son told him, I'm sure you'll find them, Dad. Then the next thing he knows, his son has died by suicide. But then shortly after, a few days later, he's out in the backyard, and he sees these birds swirling around, forming like a a cloud of birds. But the strange thing is, they're all different species. They're not the same. They're like cardinals and orioles and very colorful birds all flying together. And it's amazing, right in his backyard. And he goes and he calls his wife and she sees it. And he walks closer towards the birds and then they disperse suddenly. And as they disperse, he looks down at his feet and there are the glasses that he lost. Uh, He describes that as an after-death communication from his son. And, of course, there are so many more. People could hear any one of these stories and brush them off. But there was one uh, after-death communication where somebody dictated an entire system of psychoanalysis or some kind of therapy to somebody, and it became something that was helping people in ways that no other system had been able to help them. You want to tell us about that? Well, there are a couple of examples of deceased psychiatrists who came back and said, I've now from the other side, I figured out what was missing in the psychotherapy that I was doing. So they come back and communicate an entire new system of psychotherapy. And the most famous of these used to be called the Fisher Hoffman process, where Fisher was a deceased psychotherapist and Hoffman was a tailor who lived in uh, Oakland, California, had been one of his patients. One night, in the middle of the night, Fisher appears a year after he died. He's at the foot of Hoffman's bed, fully materialized, I think, or at least fully apparent to Hoffman. And he takes him through the whole therapy process and explains the whole thing to him and says, you now you go out and teach this form of psychotherapy. And Hoffman, the tailor, says to him, you know, how can I do this? I'm just a tailor. Who's going to listen to me? And 
Fisher said, don't you worry about that. Doors will open. And that's just what happened. All kinds of doors opened for this tailor. He he attracted the interest of a very well-known psychiatrist named Claudio Nerano, who helped him refine and set up the therapy. And today, even today, it's called the Hoffman Quadrinity Process, and it is offered as a therapeutic system all over the world. And it supposedly was dictated by a deceased spirit. Yeah, and when we get to the chess story, we'll leave that as a teaser. Something similar happens. So uh, next point is reincarnation. I've interviewed Jim Tucker. You probably interviewed Mm -hmm. Ian Stevenson, right? You've been doing this so long. Well, I'm going to go through reincarnation very quickly because this is what people need to know. At the University of Virginia, Department of Perceptual Studies, founded by Dr. Ian Stevenson a half a century ago, I first met him in 1973, uh, they have been studying cases of young children who begin describing their past lives as soon as they can begin to speak. And they have in their database 2,700 of these cases that have been investigated by researchers. And in approximately 1,700 of these cases, the information provided by the children is sufficiently specific that researchers or family members have been able to identify the previous person. So I count that in my essay as one of the 26 white crows (laughs) that I've written about and 1,700 white crows. Yeah, in some cases, these stories are remarkable. Uh, Did you interview Ian? No, I didn't interview him. We communicated with each other, but never did an interview. We've probably both interviewed Jim Tucker. I imagine you've interviewed Jim, too. Actually not. I I know Jim Tucker and haven't yet. Yeah, he was uh, Ian's successor, really. Um, That's right. Anyway, if you listen to that kind of interview with Jim, read his books, there's so many remarkable stories of minute details that some little kid remembers about some pilot in World War II or something that he claims to have been. That's right. And one of the factors that often accompanies these reincarnation cases are what are called announcing dreams, where the parents will often have a a dream in which the spirit of the being that is going to be born into their family comes to them and tells them, I'm about to be born in your family. Yeah, my sister and her husband, her husband in particular, had that experience with both of their kids. Okay. This next one has a strange name, which I had never heard before reading your essay, although I'm from Connecticut, and there's a place in Connecticut called Darien, but this is called Peak in Darien Experiences. So what does that mean? These are the most wonderful cases. Now, in in this case, Darien refers to a province in the country of Panama, and in the I believe it was the 15th century or the 16th century, the Spanish conquistadors discovered Panama And they went and they climbed this mountain peak in the province of Darien. And what they saw surprised them. They didn't expect it. They saw the Pacific Ocean on the other side of uh, the Isthmus of Panama. So this is where you're having an experience and you encounter something you don't expect. And in this case, it could be, for example, the case I cite in the book is one is a young man. He's in a hospital. There's a very attractive 21-year-old nurse who he gets friendly with while he's in the hospital. And when she goes off for a weekend 
And while he's in the hospital, he has a medical emergency and has a near-death experience. While he's having the near-death experience, this same nurse appears to him. And he says, well, what are you doing here? And she says to him, I'm here now, but you can't stay. You have to go back. But when you go back, will you please tell my parents that I'm very sorry I crashed the red MGB? So he gets back from his experience. He's recovering. And he tells one of the nurses what happened is she breaks into tears because it turns out that this young nurse went away to celebrate her 21st birthday with her parents. And they gave her as a birthday present, a little red MGB car. And she went out in a ride immediately and crashed the car into a telephone pole and was killed. So she shows up in his near-death experience, but he had no way of knowing that she had already predeceased him. That would be an example of a uh, peak in Darien experience. And, and the reason it's important, Rick, is because oftentimes deathbed situations, a person experiences as they're about to die, relatives, deceased relatives coming to greet her. So the skeptic would say, well, that's just psychological expectation. But when the person who's coming to greet you is somebody that you believe is alive, you can't attribute that to psychological expectation at all. So it, it's just another example that gives weight to the idea of an afterlife. It points in the direction of the afterlife. And the next one is instrumental transcommunication. That's one that will appeal very much to people who are materialists, who enjoy working with radios, televisions, computers, and other gadgets, because there are tens of thousands of hobbyists who are using electronic means to communicate with the deceased. In fact, it's very common in all these ghost hunter TV shows. They use these devices. And often you'll watch these TV shows and they'll show you the voices that come through. Often people actually have two-way conversations with these voices that can be heard on their electronic devices. And the phenomenon has been studied extensively by researchers, including Annabella Cardoso in Spain. She's a former senior diplomat with the Portuguese Foreign Service, was a consul general in the charge to affairs of various major consulates for Portugal. But she conducted experiments because she became a very talented operator of instrumental transcommunication has had many, many hours of communication with deceased relatives that have been recorded. And she went into a acoustical laboratory, electronically shielded, and did this research in that shielded laboratory. It's been published in a scientific journal, and it's very strong evidence that the deceased are capable of communicating with us using electronic devices. Yeah, if one reads your essay, there are videos embedded in it, as I said, and um, some of those show examples of what you're talking about, and they're quite remarkable. I had never heard anything like that. You hear voices, and the, the setup is explained how it's controlled and it's not faked and all that stuff, but various people start speaking and, and saying interesting things, even some of them with quite a sense of humor and with a British accent. Very interesting. Yeah. 
You know, I have to admit, when I started out, I was very skeptical of this area. It seemed like it was rife for psychological projection. You hear a noise coming through the static, and you can imagine that it sounds like a deceased person speaking to you. But when you look at the strongest cases, there's no doubt that there's two-way communication going on. Yeah, also, there were things with film where images are showing up on film, even though under its very controlled circumstance that there was you know, no one was meddling with the camera, but there's all kinds of faces and other things showing up on the film and writing and all kinds of interesting things. So we can only touch upon it here, but it's just one of those things which is out of sight, out of mind. But if you look into it, it's very compelling. The next uh, category is xenoglossy. What does that mean? Xenoglossy is the ability of an individual to speak a language that they have never learned. And there are a handful of well-researched cases in this area. They're obviously suggestive of reincarnation, particularly because often these languages are spoken in a dialect that wasn't used for hundreds of years And people come through not only speaking that language, but with the personality of someone from an earlier period. So it seems to be either an example of reincarnation, memory coming through, or it could be an example of possession. It's sometimes hard to tell. You know, something that's related to this is where somebody will have a head injury or something, and all of a sudden they can play jazz piano, you know, where they hadn't been able to play piano before, or they become really good at math all of a sudden or some mm-hmm. such thing. You know, it's yes, it's really uh, hard to explain. That, that's right. There are many cases of, of these savants yeah. who uh, have an injury and as a result of the injury, uh, gain capacities rather than lose. Okay, now we're getting into the mental mediumship category. And uh, this would be a good Time to ask Rita's question, Rita from somewhere in the U.S. Can you speak about the difficulty in identifying authentic psychic occurrences versus fraud? Modern-day magicians are capable of tricks that can be even more astonishing than psychic claims. I used to be a huge believer. Now I am a hoper that it's true, and this is a concern of mine. And it's a valid concern. There has always been individuals who are capable of and willing to use fraudulent techniques to deceive people. And uh, you can deceive people about spiritual contact with the afterlife. It can make, you can make a living at it. So that's why psychical researchers and parapsychologists have developed the experimental method, because the whole idea of doing things using laboratory conditions is that you create conditions to rule out fraud. For example, if you're doing research on precognition, the ability of individuals to see the future, well, if they're looking at a target that doesn't exist in the present day, they're describing a target in the present day that won't exist until sometime in the future, like what's going to happen in the stock market three days from now, you can avoid the problem of cheating or sensory leakage unless the researchers themselves are cheating. And because researchers sometimes do cheat, in every field of science, you avoid that problem by making sure there are teams of people working together. So not a single person can't just cheat all on their own. 
the scientific method evolved for that purpose. Now, you gain something by using the scientific method in that respect, and, and that is you can rule out most forms of cheating. Now, skeptics are very clever. In fact, they'll say, well, I can't figure out how any cheating could have occurred in present-day experiments, but give me another 30 years, and I'm sure that I will. That's the viewpoint that skeptics take, but parapsychologists will tell you our research is far more rigorous than most conventional sciences because we've had to deal with these problems and have constantly had to battle skeptics who won't accept our research no matter how good it is. Yeah, and a lot of these people have been very cooperative and open to having skeptics come and scrutinize them every which way and stipulate all kinds of controls and limitations that they have to abide by. And they've really bent over backwards to try to make it as you know solid as possible. That, that's true. And now with regard to mental mediumship, of course, and even worse for physical mediumship, the rule of thumb from people in you could call it the skeptical community or the rationalist community, but their rule of thumb, however they want to describe themselves, I call them scoffers. If somebody claims mediumistic ability, that automatically means they're a fraud. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. This is the category in which we get into this chess match. So there was a chess master named Marcosi or something like that who lived a century ago. You go ahead and tell the story. It begins with a Swiss researcher, an economist named uh, uh, Wilhelm Eisenbeis. And he had the bright idea that if you want to come up with really strong evidence for survival of consciousness, What if we could find a deceased chess master who would be willing, working through a medium, to play a game of chess with a living chess master? And he actually was able to enlist the support of Victor Korchnoi, who at the time was the number two ranked chess player in the world. And he had a friend named uh, Robert Rollins, who was a medium who practiced automatic writing and had a spirit guide. So In one of his sessions with Rollins, he said, would you ask your spirit guide to check around in the spirit world and see if there are any deceased chess masters who would be willing to play a game of chess with Victor Korchnoi? And sure enough, one of them did. His name was Geza Maroxi, who had been in his day number two in the world and died in 1951. This game took place in 1987, and it ran for several years because uh, they had to communicate via mail, and Korchnoi was traveling all over the world. And at the end of the game, Korchnoi won, but he was afraid he would nearly lose. And uh, the game was analyzed extensively by one of my colleagues, Vernon Nepe, who was a chess player himself, and he pointed out that Maroxi, who died in 1951, had a weak opening by modern standards. In his day, it would have been considered a strong chess opening, but he was off to a bad start because subsequently, since he died, amongst the world of professional chess players, they had discovered great counter moves to that opening. Nevertheless, in spite of the weak opening, 
Meraxi played a strong game. Korkchenoi was afraid he was going to lose at one point, but he won the game. Nevertheless, it was at one time examined by the great American chess master Bobby Fischer, who happened to be the brother-in-law of a parapsychologist, Russell Targ, a good friend of mine. And Bobby Fischer looked at the moves and he said, yes, this game was played at the grandmaster level. So it's considered some of the strongest proof ever of survival of consciousness, because not only do you have a personality coming through, a personality who was incidentally able to describe hundreds of events from his life as a living chess player with like 98% accuracy, but was also able to exhibit a skill a rare skill to play chess at that level, that that skill had somehow stayed with him after his death. For people who might say, well, reincarnation evidence only shows that memories can be transferred, which isn't really true. It shows a lot more than that. Or that when people have near-death experiences or after-death communications, it, it could be explained away by telepathy. You can't really explain away a skill like playing chess at the grandmaster level as an example of telepathy. And also Marachni, however you pronounce it, hadn't reincarnated. He was still on the other side and he was communicating the chess moves to a very amateur chess player, right? Who was then just saying, okay, move to move your queen to here. The medium, Robert Rollins, didn't even know how to play chess at all when the project began. So he had to be 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 taught the rudiments of it. The rudiments so that he understood the uh, meaning of, you know, the moves. Yeah, interesting. Um, And in terms of knowledge being, you know, moved from one lifetime to the other, I mean, maybe, how do you explain child prodigies like Mozart and all, you know, maybe they were great musicians in a previous life and they're just, yeah. You know, how is it that a four-year-old can start composing symphonies? Right. (laughs) Okay. We've touched a little bit about on physical mediumship, I believe. Is there anything more we want to say about that? Well, we talked about it briefly uh, in terms of the, phenomenon associated with instrumental trance communication. We've talked about uh, photographs appearing. The most remarkable phenomenon that occur in physical mediumship sections is materialization. And the most dramatic of these would be full form materialization, where spirits appear and can be photographed. And there are many instances of this. Of course, again, it triggers the boggle threshold of people. And many people will say, I just can't deal with this. I can't accept it. It's got to be fake. And often these photographs even look fake, which (laughs) complicates matters further. But if you study the conditions under which they were taken, it doesn't appear that, that they were fake. And there are many examples. The most recent, the one I cite in my essay, is from A New York Times journalist, Leslie Kane, the author of the book Surviving Death, who attends a session of a physical medium in England, a a medium named Stuart Alexander, who I've interviewed a few times. And in his sessions, routinely people report spirit materialization. And Leslie herself 
witnessed this and documents it extensively and, and speaks about it. How first, what happened in this instance is the ectoplasm, which is a mysterious substance that often appears in seances, is produced. It looks like an amorphous cloud, something like coming out of your steam iron, cloud forms. And then suddenly the cloud kind of takes shape. And she says a human hand appeared and she was able to touch the human hand and shake the hand. And then the hand evaporates it back into the cloud. And so it's not like the slime in Ghostbusters. No, not <laughs> quite, but I suppose there might be some parallels there. In, in any case, phenomena like this have been attested to under good lighting and seance conditions for well over 100 years. Yeah, and I don't think you would argue that there haven't been frauds. I mean, sure, in the whole course of interest in all these things, I'm sure there have been people who've been fraudulent, as there are in any field. I have a good friend who is Harry Houdini's great nephew. And uh, of course, Houdini spent a lot of time trying to debunk fraudulent. And he was sincerely interested in finding someone who was the real deal. And I, I don't know if he ever was satisfied that anybody was that he talked to, or maybe you know otherwise. I don't know. Well, no, I think Houdini probably went to his grave feeling that he hadn't found what he was looking for, uh, evidence that would convince him. But also, he is a complex character because he developed a public persona as a person who exposes fake mediums. And there's at least one famous case on record, a medium known as Marjorie. Her actual name was Minna Cramden. Back in around 1925, she had entered a, a competition sponsored by Scientific American for proof of the afterlife. And she was a great medium and produced evidence in front of a a committee from Harvard University and then yet another committee from the Scientific American. And they were going to award her the prize of $5,000, which back in 1925 was a lot of money. And then Houdini stepped in. He was convinced that he would be able to expose her. And there are accounts that suggest that he actually tried to trip her up by planting. He had her in a wooden box. So her hands were strapped into this box. They could stick out on each side of the box. Her neck was enclosed in the box. So just her head and her hands came out of the box. And Houdini apparently planted an object in the box, and he was planning to open up the box and show that the object, I think it was a a saw or something like that, and then claimed that that proved she was cheating. But he had planted it for the purpose of exposing her. It was a trick on his part completely. So I don't know that Houdini was always really completely honest himself in his investigations. There are many, many other accounts suggesting that the medium known as Marjorie was authentic for the most part. It could well be that sometimes mediums who are authentic are under a lot of pressure. If this is a a profession where they're expected to perform on demand and they will cheat, especially if they're in trance and it's their unconscious that is operating instead of their conscious mind. So that's why scientific conditions are very appropriate. 
uh, oftentimes you'll find that mediums who have been accused of cheating in conditions where you can't be sure because it's not controlled by scientists when they're put into a laboratory situation and cheating is impossible for various reasons, then authentic phenomena appear. Okay, good. This is a poignant question from Chris Thomas. How can I overcome my crippling fear of death? Your essay seems to imply there's nothing to worry about, but as a scientist, I just can't let go of the fear that I might not exist at some point. Well, I guess as a scientist, if you study the evidence, you can become partly convinced, but usually the best way to be convinced is to have a firsthand experience, which I had in 1972 with my dream of Uncle Harry, the most powerful dream of my life today, I can say 50 years later. So I have no doubt. And maybe that's what it will take for you if you're a scientist, especially if you know your colleagues are going to start laughing at you if you think otherwise. That's one of the real problems in the scientific community, where so many scientists, just like everyone else, accepts the reality of paranormal phenomenon and postmortem survival, but they're afraid to talk about it openly. All I could say is, you know, continue to familiarize yourself with the evidence, open yourself up to your own dream experiences and other experiences you might be having of a paranormal nature. Sometimes people in the scientific community have such experiences, and then they deny that it ever happened. This happened to me, or I was witness to this back in the days when I was working with Uri Geller in the mid-1970s. I took Geller to a physics lab at Berkeley at Cal, and he bent the ring of another physicist named Forrest Moser while I was watching and right in front of everybody's eyes. Ring like a wedding ring kind of thing? Yes. Yeah, he held it in his hand and the ring became soft and bent. And Moser said, if anybody were to tell me what I'm telling you, what I just witnessed, if anyone were to say that this was real, I would tell them to take a vacation. Funny thing, He himself took a vacation shortly thereafter. And when he came back from his vacation, he said, oh, no, this didn't happen. What I would suggest to Chris is find an effective spiritual practice of some kind, because there's two things. There's knowledge and there's experience. And as a scientist, you know that. You don't just form hypotheses. You test them and try to get empirical evidence. So there's ways of getting empirical evidence for all these things we're talking about. And actually, the final chapter of Jeffrey's book gets into this, where he starts talking about consciousness as the ultimate reality and so on. One can explore that experientially. And when you become familiar with that level of experience, then fear dissipates. There's a verse in the Upanishads which says, certainly all fear is born of duality. And you can reach a level of experience which is beyond duality, which is beyond relativity, which is sort of absolute pure consciousness. And in doing that, there's no fear at that level. And that gets incorporated into your daily life. You know, I mean, obviously, if somebody dangles you from the Golden Gate Bridge by your ankles, you're going to experience fear. That's human. But in general, the fear of death, I don't think yogis and mystics and and so on, had very much fear of death, if any. 
because they just or knew with a certainty in their gut. Near-death experience yeah, that too. to lose. But you don't want to necessarily have to have a crisis in order to lose your fear of death. But I do, I do agree with Rick completely. Spiritual practice can often get you there. When you understand that you're one with the universe, then nothing can harm you. Read the second chapter of the Bhagavad Gita. There's some great verses in there about this. This is an interesting question from Eva Kubik in Melbourne, Australia. Can we cure depression by removing negative entities attached to the energy centers? Well, there are many forms of uh, psychotherapy known as spirit releasement therapy, spirit release therapy that do that, as a matter of fact. But I don't know that that accounts for all forms of depression. It certainly can account for forms of depression or obsession or anxiety that are caused by spirit attachments. But I think there may well be other sources of depression besides that. Oh, yeah. Here's a question from Richard Higgins in Julian, North Carolina. Thank you, Mr. Mishlove, for all your wonderful interviews. Would you say a few words about the amazing Dean Brown, one of my favorite interviews? I can't find any of his books other than two leather-bound books giving scientific instructions concerning nuclear reactors. Does he have any book showcasing his vast knowledge of linguistics and the Vedas? There is a translation published by Dean Brown of the Upanishads, and it is for sale through uh, the Philosophical Research Association uh, or Society in Los Angeles, the society that publishes the books of Manley Hall. Dean Brown was a great friend of mine, one of my best friends. He died, gosh, when was it now? About 20 years ago. And uh, I have to say this. After he died, many people would come up to me and say, I'm sorry for your loss because people understood he was my best friend. And I would think to myself, well, I'd usually say thank you for your condolences, but I would think to myself, I'm not sorry for my loss at all. I know he's passed into another world and I'll see him again. I didn't consider it really a loss of a permanent nature, just a temporary thing. Yeah. You didn't lose anything. He didn't lose anything. But he was a wonderful man, wonderful man and a great inspiration to me, a true polymath, a theoretical physicist to New Einstein, a a man who studied many, many foreign languages, translated the Upanishads. I, I could go on and on in praise of Dean Brown. I loved him dearly. You've devoted over half a century to all of this and have interviewed so many hundreds of fascinating people and, you know, in-depth conversations, and you've pondered every profound idea there is to ponder. What is your sense of where humanity is going? Let's say you and I were to live another hundred years, which is, we're not going to, but let's say we were. What do you think we'd end up seeing if you could speculate There are two questions, actually, that is important to look at. One is the future of humanity, and the other is the future of consciousness. And the simple truth is humanity is not going to survive. Humanity will become extinct. That's right. What's your timeline? Well, 
I don't have a precise timeline, but I would say we're at real risk that it could happen sooner rather than later. I've been exploring this question with a medium, trying to get answers from the other side about it. And they tell me that humanity is much closer to its extinction than we are to its birth. Now, the birth of humanity, I think we know, could go back anywhere from 30,000 to 300,000 years. Some people even say millions of years. But however long it is, I think it's fair to say we're closer to our end than our beginning. For one thing, in my lifetime, for the first time in human history, we have the capability of destroying ourselves. Human species has the possibility of ending all human life on this planet. And not only that, I hear from social commentators that we're closer to, you know, what the people talk about, the nuclear clock. We're closer to zero, to midnight clock or something. Yeah, the doomsday clock. I don't know that humanity will destroy itself or will be destroyed by a comet or something, but the... The simple fact is that consciousness isn't going to be destroyed if that happens. Consciousness will continue and will evolve into other species eventually. I think that time and space are infinite. And so the possibilities for development of consciousness are endless. However, the human species is in real trouble. Look what we're doing to the planet. Look at how many species go extinct every year. Every day, I think it's like 150 a day if you count every last little insect and everything else, things that are going extinct. And that's largely because of our behavior. Yeah. Have you ever heard these stories about UFOs uh, supposedly deactivating nuclear facilities or missile launching sites and things? I think those are credible. Some people think that they'll come in the nick of time and prevent us from doing ourselves in, either through preventing us from nuking ourselves or provide some kind of technologies that will enable us to clean up the environment. I suspect that's wishful thinking. Could be, yeah. I think if anything, they're watching us. They're very interested in the question of, can we survive this very dangerous time in our history? Will we evolve spiritually enough sufficiently to overcome our propensity to use the power that we now have to destroy ourselves? And I'm kind of To be honest, I'm pessimistic. I try every day to communicate with people in a positive way, to get people in touch with their own spiritual energies so that we could avoid such a terrible catastrophe. But it just seems to me that the weight of uh, civilization is moving slowly but inexorably in a different direction. And we may become one of those extinct civilizations that is no longer capable of communicating electromagnetically with other potential civilized planets in the galaxy. I would say that I'm optimistic, but I don't know if I'm realistic. If it weren't for my familiarity with spirituality and awakening and all that. If all I knew was what I saw in the news, I would be pessimistic for sure. But I think that there's this undercurrent of awakening consciousness happening in the world, which may save the day. It's a kind of a pitched battle, I think, between that and the forces of destruction. 
there's a fellow I interviewed a couple months ago named Dwayne Elgin, who had this interesting. Oh, I know Dwayne. Yeah. Yeah. So he had this like three scenarios. We Everything's going to crumble in all three of his scenarios. But in, in scenario number one, it's just going to stay crumbled and we may all die. In scenario number two, mm-hmm. there's going to be some kind of Chinese style authoritarian AI society. And in scenario number three, though, the undercurrent of spirituality will come and kind of lift us out of the chaos of the crumbling and uh, things will turn out good in the end. And there are a lot of... Uh, ancient cultures which predicted something like that a collapse of all the systems that weren't working and then eventually some kind of age of enlightenment or new age or brighter time well i think it's good to have a sense of humility when it comes to forecasting the future for sure yeah and like you say and i mean nobody dies i think the main thing is to do what you can to make the best of this opportunity that of the life you've been given both for yourself and for others. And then we'll just see what happens. But we ain't going nowhere, ultimately. I think that it's very likely that you and I have both had previous lifetimes as members of species that no longer exist. Could be. I would say not only could be, but almost definitely. Interesting. Well, we're speculating, but it's good to be able to play with all possibilities, not to have the attitude that, no, this couldn't be, or that couldn't be, but just to say, who knows, you know, take everything as a, as a hypothesis that's worth considering. I mean, if all the hardcore scientists who are brushing aside all the evidence that you've brought out were to have that attitude, it would have been gone mainstream by now. Yeah. One of my dictums is be curious rather than judgmental. Yeah. Good one. All right. Let's end on that note. That's a good ending point. Thanks so much, Jeffrey. It's been wonderful spending a couple of hours with you and and the whole week, you know, reading your essay and listening to a lot of your talks. And over the years, I've listened to a number of your interviews, usually when I'm going to interview somebody that you've interviewed. Like, for instance, Bernard Carr was my previous guest. So I listened Mm -hmm. to all of your Bernard Carr interviews, got a lot out of them. Well, I'm delighted to be on your show, Rick, and I I can tell you that many of my viewers and and many of my guests speak very highly of uh, the work that you're doing, so it's an honor for me to be here with you. Thank you. Oh, yes, and likewise, my dear friend Angel Markloid, who is the video editor for BatGap, has been bugging me for years to get you on, on BatGap because she's a big fan of your work and as are a lot of people. And so anyway, it's, it's wonderful. I hope we meet in person one of these days. If I ever get down to New Mexico, I'll be sure to make that happen and maybe we'll meet somewhere else as well. Good. Okay. And thanks to those who've been listening or watching. There's a really cool new thing that somebody just notified me of it the other day. He had developed this whole system where you can type in a phrase. Like I just, typed in the word eggs as an experiment. And after that, I typed in the word chickens. And it instantly brings up all the BatGap interviews in which those words or phrases were mentioned. And all you have to do is click on them and it shows the video where the word was mentioned. And if you click play, it immediately begins to play it from the very spot where that word was mentioned. So it's really neat. And uh, I'll have it up on the site pretty soon. We have to figure out right now it's hosted on a server that sits sitting on top of his refrigerator. So we're going to get it into a more stable situation and, and get it running. And I'll, I'll send out an announcement. Oh, we have a similar function on the uh, New Thinking Aloud Foundation website, newthinkingaloud.org. And it includes not only our videos, but many others. And we could add your videos into it as well. Great. All right. Let's talk about that.
So thanks so much. And thanks to those who've been listening or watching. And we'll see you next week. Thanks, Jeffrey. You're welcome.